Stories are what we live by, what we tell ourselves, what we believe is true. What if I told you that you are loved, desired, and you are made with a purpose? You are accepted. You have a precious soul and you have a meaningful body. You are empowered by God himself to live the rich and abundant life he always wanted for you. You are called into a mission to tell the story of God's love to all the world, and you are destined to be with Him forever. This is the true story of what it means to be a person made in the image of God and living by faith in the Son of God. This is what you are longing for. This is who you really are. How can God look at this when I'm drowning in my less thans, my not enoughs, my missing the marks? How can he look at me with my list of sins and embarrassing facts and love me when you had nothing to offer him? When you were enemies of the cross of Christ, when you were godless, without hope, without God in the world, God so loved you and me that he gave his one and only son to die for us. And if God could do that, if he could love you and me when we were that, what makes you think now in your penitent and willing giving to God and yet stumbling? He could love you less. You're listening to Life on the West Side. Here's Nathan Guy. Everyone had gone home, but not Jesus. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. And maybe you didn't catch that line before because that's the last verse of John chapter 7. And the story we're about to talk about is in John chapter 8. But don't forget the lead up. Everyone went to their own home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And I can picture him there. Sleeping outside, exposed to the weather. With his head on a rock. You know, there are 160 million homeless people. And if you extend that larger to those without adequate housing, the number is 1.6 billion. Jesus could say, I've been there to so many people. And if you ever wonder, does Jesus understand when I hurt? Does he know what it's like to be me? Would he, would, what would it be like if he could walk a mile in my shoes? Jesus could say to so many people, I have, I do, and I do it barefoot. The next morning, Jesus shows up in the temple courts, and he begins to teach, and all the people gather around him. And that's when it happened. While he's teaching, it says that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees bring in a woman caught in the act 
of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act. I love the way Max Lucado sets this scene. Listen to his words. Jesus has been teaching. The woman has been cheating. And the Pharisees are out to stop them both. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The accusation rings off the courtyard walls. Caught in the act of adultery. The words alone are enough to make you blush. Doors slammed open. Covers jerked back. In the act. In the arms. In the moment. In the embrace. Caught. Aha. What have we here? This man is not your husband. Put on some clothes. We know what to do with women like you. In an instant, she's yanked from private passion to public spectacle. Heads poke out of windows as the posse pushes her through the streets. Dogs bark. Neighbors turn. The city sees. Clutching a thin robe around her shoulders, she hides her nakedness. But nothing can hide her shame. From this second on, she'll be known as an adulteress. When she goes to the market, women will whisper. When she passes, heads will turn. When her name is mentioned, the people will remember. Moral failure finds easy recall. We could talk about the setup. Adultery and involves somebody else, and where is the man? And you know, it takes two or three witnesses to condemn. And what are the chances that two or three witnesses happen to stumble upon this woman in the very act at the same time that Jesus is teaching in the temple courts? It smells awful. We could talk about that. But would any of that change the facts of what she did? Have you found that in the most distressing mistakes of your life, telling and retelling the background, trying to explain away the circumstances, mentioning the other participants, have you found that to set you free from the guilt you still feel? What to do? What to do? Moses commands that we stone to death such people. What do you say that we should do? Stoner. With rocks. I think we're tempted to just assume sometimes when we picture something like this, that, that they were picking up stones and maybe they were the size that, that would fit in a sling. Maybe a little bit bigger. I mean, something that would really pepper her, pebble her hurt her. That's not what they were going for. They were trying to kill her. So you have to start imagining that they were picking up boulders. And what must be going through their mind when they're picking up something that's intended with one hit to end their life? It's easy to feel self-righteous. 
It's easy to point the finger. It's easy when somebody's sin is on public display. She's the subject of the controversy. And so they form a circle and they place her in the middle. She's the subject, but Jesus is the object. He's the object of the entire inquisition. So he's in the circle too. She's the bait. He's the catch. What to do? So the text says that Jesus stoops down and writes in the sand. I don't know what she wrote, what he wrote. You know, I think I told you before, a commentator by definition is someone with too much time on their hands. And you go looking through the commentaries and they come up with some really interesting ideas, none of which are in the Bible, but interesting ideas. You know, there's this passage in the Old Testament that says, God, as the judge, I will write their names in the dust of the earth before I condemn them. Maybe that's what he's doing, writing all the names of the people who are involved in this setup. Text doesn't say that, but it's an interesting idea. Maybe, you know, he's, he's drawing a picture, almost like, you know, a chart. This is where you were standing two hours ago when you were plotting this doesn't say. What I think is interesting is that as he bends down to write on the sand, he takes the focus off of the woman, and nobody's talking about her right now. They're talking about him. Isn't that what he does? Comes into our situations, and all the focus is on our problems, and he becomes the object, and the focus is on the solution. Also interesting that if they're forming a semicircle or a circle and Jesus bends down, these people who were looking ferociously at the woman are now standing, maybe looking at each other. And then Jesus gets up and he says, You without sin. If you've never sinned, if you have no sin on your account, throw the first stone. And then he bends down again. And one by one, the text says, starting with the oldest and then the youngest, they drop the rocks. I doubt it took very long before the woman, surrounded by bloodthirsty men, now senses the loneliness surrounded by left-behind stones. There is no one there, no one except Jesus. And here's where the story takes a final dramatic turn. Jesus looks up and looks around and says, where are your accusers? Is there no one left to condemn you? Hasn't a single person condemned you? Or as the ESV says, has no one condemned you? No one. Some Bibles say Lord. Just know Lord here is a term of respect. That's why other Bibles say no one, sir. And then Jesus says this, well, then neither do I. Now, that's not all he says. We're quick to point out that that's not all he says. He says, go and sin no more. Can I tell you, that is expected. Of course, he says that. Our God is a God of holiness. Jesus Christ is the perfect example of faithfulness. Go and sin no more is the obvious line 
We're called to live pure lives. We're called to present our bodies as living sacrifices. But it's also true that in every covenant, people were called to offer their sacrifices, not to earn or attain his love, but because they were God's chosen people, because they were loved by God. A sacrifice is a thanksgiving tribute. And after God saved Noah from the floodwaters, he offered a sacrifice. In the New Testament, after Jesus sees Zacchaeus, he says, I must go to your house. You too are a son of Abraham. And it's then, after Jesus welcomes himself into Zacchaeus' house, after he calls him special and a member of the in-group, that Zacchaeus says, I'm going to offer back. I'm going to give back and more. I'm going to make things right. That's his sacrifice. And when the church gathers, we offer to Jesus the fruit of our lips, our a praise like a sweet fragrance offering. Go and sin no more is a call to freedom, to live like free men and women, set free from sin, declared holy and righteous and good. But it's the first part of the line that stuns us, stuns me. I want you to say it to yourself over and over again. You who feel guilty, you who know that you're guilty. You who relive that event in your life, that one so long ago that everybody who was there to witness it knows and reminds you that you're guilty. Listen to the judge of all the earth declare you not guilty. I don't condemn you. No, John 3.16 is maybe the most well-loved verse in the entire Bible, for good reason. You know it so well. The world's dark. The world's anti-God. And the text says God so loved that world that he gave his only son. God so loved the world. Why do you and I have such a hard time believing that God's love is unconditional? Why do we believe the lie that God only loves you on certain occasions? God loves me when I try hard. God loves me when I do well. God loves me when I don't sin. God loves me when I achieve greatness. Pick the line that we tell ourselves. All we know is conditional love. Your boss, your coach, your teacher. It seems like. People love us as long as. I'm loved as long as, as I do right. As I look right. As long as I have the right things. And this is from people who only know some things about us. If God knows everything about me, surely it's got to be worse. How can God look at this? when I'm drowning in my less thans, my not enoughs, my missing the marks, how can he look at me with my list of sins and embarrassing facts and love me when you had nothing to offer him, when you were enemies of the cross of Christ, when you were godless, without hope, without God in the world? God so loved you and me. 
in the whole God-forsaken world that he gave his one and only son to die for us. And if God could do that, if he could love you and me when we were that, what makes you think now in your penitent and willing giving to God and yet stumbling, in your less than perfect obedience to God, in your trying but failing but trying? He could love you less. He couldn't love you more. There's a reason why we call it good news. Unconditional love. It's a love that's not based on your performance, but on his ability to never stop loving. He can't help it. He is pure, unadulterated love. And you, made, sought, bought, redeemed, and reconciled you, you are the object of his love. Faith in him can lead the farthest soul back to the arms of God, and there is no distance he won't travel. There's no barrier he won't cross to find any lost lamb and bring them home. That's John 3.16, and it's a beauty. But John 3.17 is even better. Do you know why Christ came into the world? He tells us, God sent his son into the world, but he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. It's such a powerful verse. When I look around and I see what's going on in the world, all I want to do is condemn it. But then I have to remember, if I'm going to condemn it, I've got to condemn me. And God, who looked at the God-forsaken world, loved the world and sent his son not to condemn it, but to save it. Haven't we figured this out already? That's not what he's about. Some of us are so neurotic that there isn't a person on earth who can condemn us as much as we can condemn ourselves. Paul shares the struggle in Romans chapter 7 of the desire to do right and the present evil that seems to always be close at hand that brings us down. And he cries out, O wretched man that I am, Who can save me from this body of death? That's the end of Romans chapter 7. We know about deliverance. God saves the world. But do you know what that means? Paul wants to put the emphasis on what that means for you. On a stunning verse. And that's why Romans chapter 8 verse 1 begins with this line. Therefore. There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's how he begins the chapter. You remember Romans has 16 chapters. That means this is the heart of the book. And Romans is his magnum opus. This is the heart of the heart of the teaching of Paul. And if you take a look at the New Testament, it looks about right in the middle. The heart of the heart of the heart of the story. There is now no condemnation for those that are in 
Christ Jesus. Paul can't help himself. I mean, Paul writes Romans 8, and he says, this is going to be my favorite chapter, so let me just list all the, all the best hits. Look at the end of Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 31. I'm going to read this to you. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. So who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? When I think about the woman caught in the act of adultery staring at the men who are staring at her with daggers, looking at the rocks in their hands, I imagine she sees tribulation and distress, persecution, nakedness, danger. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure of this, says Paul, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I don't know what to say other than. It's true. For the Christian, condemnation has already happened. Christ was given the sentence of condemnation. And in his death, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that whoever believes in him is not condemned. John 3 and verse 18. And there is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, you're free, church. You're free. But I think that there are some of us in this room this morning still holding rocks in our hands. Not to hurt our neighbor, to inflict ourselves. Maybe we've accumulated one stone for every mistake we've made. And our bag holding all of our mistakes is so heavy and wrapped around our necks. And we carry that burden with us everywhere we go. Maybe it affects how we start treating other people. It certainly affects how we treat ourselves. And it affects how we see God. It affects how we see the world. We can't even see straight because we're so bent over from the weight of our sins. Even when we know his love for us is deeper than the ocean, even when we believe that he declares us not guilty, free from condemnation through the cross, we still can't get over 
that sin that we committed last week, last month, last year, that terrible mistake that lingers in our mind for decades, some of us, as we tell ourselves over and over, maybe he has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. If that sounds all too familiar, John writes the book of 1 John for you. It seems that John heard this line in the first century in congregation after congregation. He heard it from church members in conversations over potlucks and during hospital visits and in counseling sessions in his office. And so he writes the letter of 1 John for people like you and me. And in chapter 1, he reminds those of us who've chosen the way of Christ that our daily walk with its ups and downs, our daily walk hanging on to him, means that our walk is in the light. And that means that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from every sin. We can misread that. Walking in the light means doing everything right, which means that you're in grace and out of grace, in grace and out of grace, in grace and out of grace, 20 times a day. Where's the assurance in that? Our daily walk, John says, in the gospel that bears his name, refers to whether you're walking with Christ or your walk is without Christ. Light and darkness are as opposite as can be. And those whose walk is in Christ Those whose walk is with Christ means a daily walk that has highs and lows. And if our walk is with Christ, then our walk is in the light. And the blood of his son cleanses us from all sin. We know that's true because the same people are being cleansed from all sin are told to confess that they have sin. And that leads to a second misunderstanding in verse 9. Well, sure, if I make a mistake and then I get on my knees and I ask God to forgive me, then he'll forgive me. Do you realize that there are sins of commission? That's when you do something wrong. And there are sins of omission. That's when you fail to do something right. It seems to me we're going to have to be in our knees every second of every day, not just saying, forgive me for what I did five minutes ago, but for what I probably did five minutes ago that I'm not even aware of. Well, now we're getting to something. We're talking about a lifestyle of confession. We're talking about recognizing at every moment, nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling, and to those people, people who know that I have sinned, people who know I'm not what I need to be, but know who Jesus is. To those people, he says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. How often? The blood of his son continually cleanses us from all sin. We stand with no condemnation in his sight. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins, I don't want you to sin, but if you do sin, if you do sin, I want you to know you've got the best lawyer in the world. In all the movies, you want the lawyer who plays golf with the judge. That's who you want. We got something better. This is the judge's son, who is our lawyer. He's our advocate. And not just that. Our defense is not what you and I have done. It's what he has done. Our lawyer stands before his father and says, welcome my son, my daughter, my brother into the kingdom. Welcome him. Look at the nail prints in my hands. He's paid his debt. Or rather, I've 
paid his debt. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who died not just for our sins as propitiation, but for the sins of the whole world and for the neurotics among us. So that's all great and all, but I still don't believe it. He writes chapter 3, 1 John 3, 19 and 20. Brothers, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Even when you tell yourself he couldn't possibly accept me, God says, I don't know what to tell you. I'm sorry you still think that way, but I accept you. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so he can't write forever. And so he gets to the last chapter and he says, I want to leave them with something, something they'll be saying years down the road. I want to say something so great. 2,000 years from now in a small town in northeast Arkansas, my people are going to hear this and say, could that be true even for me? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, not think, not wonder, not hope, but that you may know, not that you will have, not that you might have, but that you now have eternal life. There is therefore now no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You are accepted. Will you accept yourself? Even if you won't, will you accept him who has accepted you? Not a big thing. You remember the story of Naaman wanted to get healed of his leprosy. He's told to go dunk in the water, and he says, that seems so small. And the friend says to him, you know, if they had asked you to do something big, don't you think you would have done it? Oh, Jesus asked for something big. He wants everything. He wants your entire life. But what he says is, I've accepted you in the cross. Won't you publicly confess that you want the free gift that I'm giving you? Cross over. Announce, I don't want the life I used to live. I want the life you want to give me. And that public confession looks like this. We'll ask you if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the question that's on the lips of John. He who believes in him is acquitted. Do you believe in him? Were they going to take you, that whole body? And just as we symbolize the language of this body of sin and death, we'll put the whole thing under the water. And as Christ died, was buried, and rose again, we'll lift you up and we'll announce to everybody in this room, this is a new person, a new person, accepted, freed in Christ. Whatever we can do for you this morning, whether you're not a Christian, you want to become one, or you're a member of this body, you've been holding on to your guilt and shame for 40 years. Lay your burdens down. Every sin you carry, Christ wants you to let go 
of the rocks in your life so you can grab a hold of his hand forever. Thanks for joining. No one has ever loved you like Jesus Christ. I hope you feel that love in every sermon that's preached on this podcast. You can find more sermons, transcripts, study guides at nathanguide.com. Please stay tuned for another lesson and rest in the love of Christ.